Acts chapter 2. Well, the assignment that I have been given is uh, one in a series of questions and answers that have to do with how we live out our faith and obedience to the Lord God. And so uh, tonight's question is going to lay a foundation that will set up the next several Sunday evenings of teaching in the Baptist Catechism. And so our question tonight is, what are the outward means by which Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption? And the answer to that question uh, found in the Baptist Catechism as well. The outward and ordinary means by which Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances. You could also call them sacraments, if you like. Especially the word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and prayer, all of which, all which means are made effectual to the elect for salvation. So having for some time now... Uh, Over the course of the first hundred questions and answers, having spoken a lot about the inward means of grace, namely the inward call of Christ, regeneration that is ours uh, by the Spirit, faith that is granted to us so that we might believe, and repentance that is also a gift of God, we are now going to focus on the outward means by which Jesus communicates to us these benefits that come along with the salvation uh, that redeems us. The Christian, having been called having been justified, actively being sanctified by the Holy Spirit is definitively different than he was before. There are changes wrought in our lives by the work that Christ has done and by the application of that work to us through election. The born-again relationships that we enjoy with God now come with it huge blessings and God has an ordained structure by which those blessings are to be transmitted to believers. So let's think about grace for a minute because grace is going to be uh, a word that you hear throughout tonight's discussion and, and sermon. Grace is, of course, a state of favor bestowed upon the undeserving as a gift. There we go. This gift is of immeasurable value, especially when we think about the salvific power of it. When God decides in his perfect will to grant to us salvation, he doesn't do it because of our worthiness. He doesn't do it because there is something in us that he needs. He does it simply to be God, to be a God of love, to be a God who is expressing his grace to his creation. It is his choice. And so how valuable is this gift? Salvation, of course, is priceless. Without salvation, every good thing that you experience in life has an expiration date on it. It's not going to last if you have not been saved. Whatever small amount of joy you can grab hold of in this world, if that joy is not rooted in Christ, then it is temporary at best. And it's not nearly as good as you convince yourself that it is. When you know Christ and when you've come to understand the boundless measure of his grace, you recognize how small the blessings of life apart from Christ uh, can only hope to be. But God's saving grace extends even beyond the relief of judgment. The grace of God brings with it not only salvation, but it brings several contingent gifts that flow out of that salvation. Now that we are a new person, a new creation in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are given gifts such as enlightenment, which means that now we get to see the whole of our lives through a new set of eyes. We are spiritually alive. We have a wisdom 
that far exceeds the wisdom that we could have accumulated on our own through our own intellect. We have an appreciation for beautiful and holy things that before were detestable to us, before we had no concept of, but now we get to enjoy them and behold them with wonder and gratitude. So God has given us the gift of enlightenment as believers that is a wonderful garnish to the salvation that makes us new. We've also been given peace, peace primarily with God. And there is no more important peace than the peace that we have through our maker by Jesus Christ. This is a peace that surpasses our former understanding of what peace can be, a peace that we still cannot totally comprehend. And after worshiping Yahweh for millions of years, we will still be in awe and wonder of this peace. We marvel at this peace. We enjoy it. It is a contingent blessing to salvation. We also have the contingent blessing of joy, a true happiness, a a satisfaction with our being that enables a degree of contentment that those outside of faith cannot enjoy. This joy helps us to, to be at greater peace because it's not a joy that is built on the expectation of what might come. It's a joy based on who God has always been and who he will continue to be forever. We have been given great love from God as a contingent blessing to our salvation. A love that we can now express back to God as a reflection of the love that he has given to us. A love that we can have for our fellow men, which enables us to have relationships of a magnitude of significance that we could have only dreamed of before Christ came into our life and opened our eyes to the truth. We have a new identity because of the salvation that God has given to us. We're able to bear the image of God as we were made to do, but we're able to do it more accurately than we ever could have before. We are united to him through faith. Christ is a brother to us. God is our true father. And so this identity now dominates everything about who we are. The Holy Spirit himself dwells within us. He teaches us. He guides us. You see how all of these gifts are products of his saving grace. A lost person, somebody who doesn't call on the name of Jesus, can experience maybe shadows of these things in life. But they are known truly only by those who are reconciled to the one who authored these things. God is himself true peace and true love and true joy. And in him we find the reality of our, our identity. He gives these things. He gives them freely. We don't have to pay for them because he is a gracious and holy God. So how do these extraordinary gifts come to us? They come to us, amazingly enough, in some very ordinary ways, Christian. And so tonight we're going to talk about embracing the ordinary. Now this topic doesn't get a whole ton of attention necessarily, even in the church. And the reason being for that is that our culture in the West has trained us as human beings to have an insatiable appetite for the unique and for the special. What is ordinary is thought to be automatically inferior to what is extraordinary, right? The other day I was in my closet cleaning some things out and I came across a, a big three-ring binder. And in that big three-ring binder were a bunch of little pieces of paper card, cardboard cards, of baseball cards, of my favorite third baseman and pitchers and and outfielders that I loved to watch growing up as a kid. And I started to go through that. And I've heard stories of people who go into their attic and they, they pull out these binders and they find, I never knew that I had this. It's a Joe DiMaggio rookie card and it's worth 
$850,000. And literally, the substance of this card, it is a piece of flimsy paper, the same quality of which makes up your, the outside of your Frosted Flakes box in your cabinet. You throw away hundreds of those all year long. But this one is considered valuable by our culture. Why? Because there's so few of them. It is extraordinary. I opened up my, Bible, my binder and I, I saw just a bunch of cards that are so ordinary that every person who grew up in my era has 10 of those cards. They're worth nothing because they're just common, right? But our attitude in the West is to seek after that which is extraordinary. We see this in the scriptures too. In John chapter 6, verses 25 through 29, says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, this is after Jesus has fed the 5,000. He miraculously gave nourishment to a people who had come to hear him preach and found themselves in a difficult situation. They're, they're out in a wilderness land. There's not a lot of food around. There's not a lot of resources. How do you feed these hungry people who have sacrificed to be there and to hear the message of the Lord? And so God, through his powers, made Jesus able to feed these 5,000 people with just a few loaves and a couple of fish. Now here we see in verse 25 of John 6, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they've chased after him. This is sometimes later. They said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So there's this situation here where Jesus did something extraordinary and showed a sign. And the people, rather than professing faith in Christ, follow after him because they want more of that miraculous sign. They want to see some extraordinary production of food. They want to see God showing off through Christ again. They want some miracle, some spectacle. And what does he point them to? Ordinary faith. Believe in him whom God has sent. The influence of consumerism on people in the West particularly has caused us to always desire something more special or more unique than what God has already blessed us with. And this is counteractive to contentment and peace. We live in a world that would love to just strip away our contentment because contentment doesn't cause you to take your wallet out. And so we live in a culture that is trying to train us to do exactly the opposite of what God is trying to train us to do tonight, to be unsatisfied with the ordinary things that God has given to us. 1 Timothy 6.6 6 talks about how, how godliness with contentment is of great benefit to us. So rather than thinking about the next great thing that we might acquire, that God might bless us with, let's settle down tonight and, and, and slowly look at the scriptures and see that God has given us some very ordinary things that are there for extraordinary reasons, that bless us in ways that the spectacles of the world could never bless us. We don't need a mountaintop experience necessarily to understand the grace of God or to be filled with the Spirit. Remember when Jesus showed himself in the transfiguration, he didn't even let all 12 of the guys come up and see this. He only showed it to three of the disciples so that they would be able to testify that it happened. But what the 12 disciples didn't need, what, they didn't need a big spectacle on the top of the mountain. They needed regular faithful following of Christ. Discipleship is what they needed.
So the means of grace that we're going to talk about tonight are ordinary. Ordinary, regular things that God has ordained for us to do and challenged us as his people to do so that we might be regularly receiving the grace of God in ways that are significant to our discipleship, to our testimony to him, and to our growth in faith. And these means of grace are ordinary to us, but they are way outside of the ordinary for those who strive against our Savior. If you're not a believer, then these things are not going to be ordinary. They're going to be detestable to you. You're not going to want to spend time doing the things that we're talking about tonight. For those who are in the church, there's, there's unfortunately a tendency for us to see these things as common and to take from them, them for granted. But in reality, friends, if we can see them for what God has made them to be, they are a regular provision of beautiful blessing for us through our Savior. So before we get into the details of the four particular regular means of grace that we're going to look at tonight, we want to look at some of the language in the, cat, the catechism that we spoke about today. Let's see if I'm in the right place here. I already skipped that. Um, when we speak about the means of grace, we're not trying to imply that these are techniques or spiritual behaviors that you do that will somehow in and of themselves produce a grace for you. Think about that for a minute. This is not a practical guideline to how you, you use the scripture to make spiritual life hacks that give you more grace than other Christians get. They are means of grace, not a source of grace. They are the vehicles by which God supplies his holy grace to us. So this is similar in some ways to what Paul mentioned this morning regarding Richard Foster's uh, slanted take on spiritual disciplines. He warned us that when we think about spiritual disciplines as the activities that we engage in so that we can then receive spiritual bounty of blessings back from God, we're seeing it the wrong way. The attitude is not supposed to be do this and be sanctified. Rather, God is sanctifying you in his will and his timing. And these are the ordinary ways by which his grace comes to you in that process. So we might ask a question at this point. Why are these things the ordinary means of grace and not other things? We confess tonight that God may give his mighty grace to us in any number of ways. This catechism question isn't trying to argue for what is possible before we know that with God all things are possible. But it is building an argument from Scripture that will help us to recognize what is ordinary. What is the regular means by which God gives us his grace. These are the ways that he has told us he will supply his grace to us. And so we should not undervalue these means of grace or take them for granted. We should not lament that God doesn't communicate his blessings to us exactly the ways that we wish that he would. These, these ordinary means, are the means that God has ordained for us. And the church should be built around these ordinary means. Let's talk a little bit also about some differences in languages when we're talking about these particular means. Sometimes people will call them sacraments and sometimes people will call them ordinances. And in today's usage, these words are almost, almost always used synonymously. But they have different histories and different original meanings. And so it's, it's worth our time to think about those a little bit so that we can at least identify what someone might mean when they say, well, I don't believe in sacraments, but I believe in ordinances or vice versa. An ordinance is a ceremony or, a re or religious activity commanded by God 
which man performs in obedient faith to him. So this is different than simply following the law. It is engaging in symbolically significant activity whose intention is to point the heart and the mind towards God. Some people call them rites. A sacrament is is very similar, but goes beyond the activity of the worshiper. So when you're talking about a sacrament, God is understood to be involved in that process. He is distributing spiritual blessings to the one who's participating in the sacrament. So if we're speaking about the means of grace, the vehicles by which God regularly gives us the blessings of his grace, then the word sacrament seems like the better word to use because it's not simply about what man does in worship to God. It's also about what God does in the process of man's obedience. So I actually prefer the word sacrament in this, in this situation. But there is a reason that many Protestant churches have shied away from using the term sacrament in favor of the term ordinance. And that reason dates back to the Roman Catholic Church, particularly right after the time of the Protestant Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church identifies seven different sacraments that they would call the usual means of grace. They, uh, they count baptism, confirmation, holy communion, confession, marriage, holy orders, and the anointing of the sick as the ordinary means of grace from their perspective. Since the Council of Trent, which happened in the mid-16th century, around 1545 to 1563, the Roman Catholic Church has held to a doctrine of salvation that makes the obedience of man a factor in whether or not he gets salvation. Yes, they would definitely affirm that Jesus died for your sins, but according to the Council of Trent, which is still authoritative in the Roman Church today, man by way of obedience to the sacraments that I just mentioned secures the grace of God for himself. This is not salvation by grace alone, therefore. It is not salvation through faith alone. It is not salvation in Jesus Christ alone. It makes the serious mistake of conflating the law and the gospel. Now, here's where things get dangerous. In the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the second edition, page 292, you're going to find the following statement. The church, speaking of the Roman Catholic Church, affirms that for believers, the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. So think about that for a minute. I have a slide for you. I'll put it on the screen. Think about that. What kind of danger does that present to a believer if it is necessary for you to be saved to do these things? It means that salvation is no longer a monergistic activity. It is not something that God alone does on your behalf. When the church proclaims that, yes, Christ has saved you, but he is only saving those who are going to participate in these sacraments, then now your salvation is at least in part your responsibility. They've turned what should be considered means of grace into a sacerdotal system of salvation. Sacerdotal means that only the church and its priests can dish out the grace of God to you through means of these seven seven sacraments that they identify. But simply looking upon the word of God reminds us that that is not the way that we as believers can think about this great salvation. Titus chapter three, verse four, says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We are heirs not according to our own works or ability to keep the sacraments. We are heirs according to the hope of eternal life that is found only in Jesus Christ. So you can start to see a little bit why the word ordinances was adopted by many Protestant traditions. It was an effort by some to protect against the sacerdotal system by speaking of the means of grace only in terms of what man is supposed to do in obedience to God, not efficacious for salvation, but just because God has told us to do these things. The actions are understood to be valuable for what they symbolize and not efficacious in themselves. What that means is that things like baptism and communion are done for the sake of obedience and don't involve God actually participating in the process in some supernatural way. Now, while that may guard against the mistake of thinking that these things save a person, which they don't, that attitude renders the actions themselves a bit hollow and it does take away from their beauty and significance. God is at work in the means of grace that we're gonna talk about tonight. And we don't want to deny that. He's not saving us in response to our obedience to the sacraments, but he is blessing us by way of these practices. Now, most people who use the word ordinances aren't saying that God is absent from these practices. So you have to clarify that. But I wanted to just talk a little bit about the history of word usage so you can see why things shift back and forth. In practice, many Christians today use the word ordinance. They don't have in mind the historical struggle with the Roman Catholic errors that in part brought about the Reformation. So the terms actually get used almost interchangeably today. And in practice, you can call these ordinary means of grace sacraments or ordinances probably, and it likely won't throw anybody for a loop. But whichever term you use, please recognize that God is effectively using these things to bless his people in a gracious way. They are not commanded to be performed as empty rituals. They are the specific ways that God has instructed us to interact with him, and we regularly experience his divine blessings when we do so according to his will. Now, the means of grace are not the way that we're saved, but they are a sustaining and ministering blessing to us from God. They, they therefore ought not to be thought of as burdensome. God has given these things to us not as a list of do's and don'ts, not as requirements to get into heaven. He has done these things so that we might experience the blessings that he has to offer on a regular and consistent basis. So don't think about the ordinary means of grace as some boring rote thing that you have to go through because it's just part of getting to salvation. This is my ante up. This is my due that I have to pay to get to heaven. No, these are God's gifts to us. He is not only a graceful giver of salvation, but he gracefully gives us life and everything that we need for godliness. We also need to recognize that since these are a gift from God, he has said, here is what I want for you, church. We hurt ourselves if we neglect them. If you love the Lord God and his grace is significant to you, then you would think that when God says in his scripture, this is a means by which I'm going to bless you gracefully, that you would not say, no, I'm going to look somewhere else. We hurt ourselves when we deny God these things that he has put into our lives as a blessing to us. When he says, take the Lord's Supper, it is graceful to you. Engage me with prayer. This is a beautiful thing. It's going to help us stay connected together. 
Seek me in, in my word. Learn about me. Grow in your knowledge of me. These are not things that we should think of as chores. We should love these things and we should not neglect them. We also, listen to this, we also hurt ourselves by adding to these things. By thinking that we have a better idea of how to grab hold of the grace of God and trying to make a whole bunch of ordinances that that are not prescribed in Scripture. We want our worship to God to be defined and declared by God. We want to be obedient to what He has required of us and not more than that. They are also to be an integral part of the process of discipleship. As a church, we want to have evangelistic hearts. But evangelism is so much more than just seeing a name on a list that says this person gave their life on such and such a date and so now they kind of are connected to the church in some way. Evangelism at its heart is discipleship. It is helping people to understand who God is and to grow in their love and their commitment to Him day by day. Of course, this involves regeneration, but it also involves the ongoing process of refinement whereby God strips away from us the old man and helps us to be cloaked in the new man. And so... Let us consider some of these means of grace. Baptism is one of the four ordinary means of grace that we're going to look at tonight. The spread of the gospel is not meant to happen without baptism. Think about this. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. So we focus on this great commission passage that we've heard so many times. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So baptism should ordinarily follow when one is regenerated by the inner work of the Holy Spirit. When somebody comes forward and confesses that they have brought their sinfulness before the Lord, they they are ashamed of their sin, and they've recognized that only Jesus Christ can overcome their sin, and they have surrendered their heart to him, and they have received what he is graciously giving, this new identity in Christ, then our encouragement to them should be to immediately think about being baptized. When we look at Acts, and if you've got your Bible open to Acts, you can flip over to Acts 19 for a second. Again, a lot of page flipping tonight. I will put this up on the screen just so we have it here as well. In Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, we get an example of this standard operating procedure. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there were about 12 men in all. So we see here that that the Apostle Paul, in his travels and his trying to establish new churches, finds a group of believers that have confessed there's regeneration there. They they believe on Jesus Christ, but they have not yet been baptized. And so the natural order of things is that then you need to be baptized, and you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Baptism should ordinarily, ordinarily flow when one is regenerated by the inner work of the Holy Spirit. 
being an ordinary means of grace, we should not view the command as something that's optional. It isn't the thing that saves us, but it is an ordinary means of grace that God uses as a great blessing to us. So it's not something that we say, check the box if you want to be baptized. If you are professing faith in Christ, you should be baptized. What would make a person not want to be baptized if they have truly trusted in the Savior, if they know what the gospel is, and they have believed that that gospel is saving them, then why would they not want to be baptized? There are a few reasons. Some people have a sensitivity to embarrassment. And for them to come up in front of a group, it'd be really hard for them to, to be the focus. They don't want to have everyone's eyes upon them. That to them is terrifying. You know, it's almost like being covered in spiders or something. They just they can't stand that idea. But baptism isn't primarily about you. It's about the work that Jesus has done in you. So a person who's being baptized isn't coming up to be the highlight and the focus and the star of the show. They're coming up to be a frame in which the masterpiece of Christ is displayed. Some people have a genuine fear, a fear of, of water or a fear of commitment. <laughs> and those also need to be overcome. The Lord God went to the cross boldly for us. And by his strength, we can have the courage to do whatever he calls us to do. Some people put off baptism because they have a desire to be baptized over in a certain place. I want to be baptized in the Jordan River. Or I want to be baptized in that church that I grew up in two states away. Or, or maybe they want to be baptized by a certain person. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a cousin who's a minister and I've always wanted to be baptized by my cousin. That's not a factor in New Testament baptism. In fact, Paul can't even remember who he baptized or didn't baptize at the church at Corinth because it's really not about the person that baptizes you or where those waters are located. It's about your profession of faith in Christ and about your connection to the body of Christ through that ordinary means of grace. Let's avoid the misconception also that water baptism is some supernatural kind of cleansing for us. Salvation supernaturally cleanses us. But this idea that when you're baptized, you're washed clean of your sin, that's really not a scriptural concept at all. And historically, the doctrine has been used at times as justification for people to wait until the last minute in their life to be baptized so that they wouldn't mess it up. That's nothing short of works salvation mindset. And it's something that we should reject outright. Baptism is something that God commands us to do. And every example that we have is someone who trusts in the Lord and is made new by him. Baptism is recommended right away for them. In 1 Corinthians 6.11, we read, And such were some of you, speaking of this long list of sinful, degenerate, reprobate living that the Corinthians were exposed to in Corinth. He says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. It is not the waters of the baptismal tank that wash you clean. It is the Spirit in which you become immersed when your life belongs to Christ. So even if baptism were a type of washing, you don't know when you're going to die. In the meantime, if you put it off, you've sidestepped what the Lord has always positioned near the beginning of a believer's walk in Christ. You're disobeying the proper order that God has given for discipleship to progress in the life of a believer. So let's consider some of the great benefits of baptism. 
When we are baptized as an ordinary means of grace, we become identified with our Savior and with his suffering. His death, his burial, and his resurrection, we see clearly in this dramatic form how they apply to us. Romans 6.4 says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So the picture of baptism is an outward display of what is inwardly happening in our lives. We are being connected to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His suffering happens in place of what we should suffer. And so we also see that as he rose from the dead on the third day, that we have the promise that our bodies also will rise with him one day. He is the first fruit of the resurrection. And so we too, though our earthly vessels might be destroyed here on earth, though we might get sick and die, though our life might become much shorter than we expected it to be, if we are in Christ, there is a new body ready for us. It is waiting. So as we have been identified with his, with his death and his burial, we too are identified with his Resurrection. So this is a benefit to us to know that now hell has no victory and death has no sting. Christ is risen and we will be risen with him. It is also a blessing to us because it connects us to the local body. When we are baptized, we are publicly professing that we are now following after Jesus. And there should be an understanding that that person who's being baptized is now going to be discipled under the leadership of those who are baptizing them, bringing them into a body of believers who will now become a family to them who are going to practice their faith together with those saints. 1 Corinthians 12, 12-13 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the, member of the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So when we are baptized, we are now formally declaring our connection to the people who are now our brothers and sisters in a local body that we're going to strive alongside. It is also to us a great comfort in times of doubt or struggle. You might have heard this phrase before sometimes. Don't forget your baptism, brother. Your faith is weak right now. You're doubting. There are unanswered questions that are burdening you. But don't forget your baptism. Remember that there was a time in your life when you were confident in the things of Christ, when you saw so clearly the working of God in your life that you went before other people and said, I have decided to follow Jesus. He has saved me and redeemed me and made me his. And it is now my life's commitment to walk in the light of Christ. So be comforted by that memory of what he did in your life to interrupt your sinfulness and your reprobation. Don't forget that while you were yet a sinner and a rebel against the glory of the kingdom of God, he died for you in your place. And in the right time, he let the gospel be preached to you and by the power of the spirit, he opened your eyes to what you were blind to before. And he made you hate that sin that used to dominate you, that used to be your master. You're free from that now. Remember your baptism. Remember that exodus out of a life of slavery and into this freedom that you have in Christ and cling again to Jesus. Think about how much progress you've made since that day. When he saves you, he doesn't just leave you as you are, but he continues to refine you and to make you more like Christ. So stop and take count 
of what he has done to bring you to where you're at from the day you began and from that time when you first professed to the world that I am Christ's. Consider the promises that were conferred to you and how that ordinance illustrated them so clearly that you will live eternally with him with a new body that is fit for his worship. Consider the ways that you have become one with the brothers and sisters who are around you, that you're not having to go through the struggle alone, but you are baptized into Christ and connected to the body that he, he is leading as the head of the church. So the, this baptism, and we're going to speak more of each of these ordinances in time, so I don't want to talk uh, extensively about each of these ordinances uh, because other brothers are going to preach on them in the weeks to come, but this baptism is, is a great gift to us that we should not take lightly or take for granted. The word of God is also an ordinary means of grace to the believer. The great commission that we spoke about a second ago issues a command to keep baptism an ordinary means of grace. But it also points to the fact that the expansion of God's people is not merely a numbers game. Go and do what? Make disciples. And how do you make disciples? Teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. So the commands of God throughout the generations should be of utmost importance to us. We are to have people understand the gospel. We pray that God will change their hearts and they will receive Christ. But we are also to practice the expositional teaching of the word of God so that those new believers will not remain green in their faith. Acts 2, we're back where we told you we were going to start. (laughs) Acts chapter 2, if you've got your Bible, you can open there. And we will read several verses from this section. Acts 2, verse 42. This is speaking of the early church. It's its first iteration, its first um, formation. It says in verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Think about this. The early church identified the importance of become, becoming familiar with the apostles' uh, teachings. They familiarized themselves and devoted themselves to what these apostles had to show them from the scriptures of God. And what were they teaching? They were teaching the Old Testament. So let's not think this is only a focus on the new. Acts 8.35, Then Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture. He told them the good news about Jesus. What scripture did he have? He had the Old Testament. Acts 17.2, And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, those Jews aren't going to think the letters of Peter are somehow authoritative in scripture. He's reasoning to them out of the Old Testament, isn't he? Acts 17, 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So, these are technically what we just read, historical descriptions of what happened. They're not, and I'll admit, prescriptions, are they? They said, this happened in that time. So when we read scripture honestly, we should be careful not to make commandments out of observations unless a precedence is set that clearly points to a normative pattern in the way the church is to function. In other words, yeah, maybe that's how they did it early in the church, but does that mean we should still use the word of God as an ordinary means of grace? Well, we thank the Lord that he has given us more than just the book of Acts. We look in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and in verses 1 through 5, we read, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. 
Paul is speaking to Timothy, an elder in the church, one who is coordinating the discipleship of saints. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and what? Teaching, right? For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. It'll become too ordinary for them, church. They will have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of the evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So here we have in 2 Timothy 4, not just an observation of what the church was doing, but a clear mandate that this is what the church has to be doing, that we are to teach the word, that there is an urgency that indicates this is not just a best practice or something that's good to do when you can, but it is essential to the well-being of God's people. And there's a second observation that we can make in that same passage in 2 Timothy. It addresses the fact that Timothy's going to face mounting pressure to let the church be made into a community that pleases the taste of its people rather than a community whose purpose it is to trust in God and act worshipfully in accordance with his commands. The church is going to grow bored with the ordinary means of grace. So don't let that happen. Don't let people shift away from seeing that the scriptures of God taught consistently and repeatedly and regularly in the body of Christ is good for us. doesn't matter if you've read them a hundred times. doesn't matter if you consider yourself an expert on what's being preached. To hear that preached and to see the exposition of God's word and truth is a blessing to you. And it is a means by which God delivers his grace to his people. The teaching of scripture is sadly today too ordinary for a lot of folks who come into a church looking for something less than what salvation entails. Many Westerners would be far more at home in a church that is a spectacle than a church that is respectable. A nonstop striving for the special moments sets one up for a fate that is normally disappointing on the regular basis, but is only occasionally satisfying due to its very aim and function. If the church is just a mountaintop experience, you're only going to get one every once in a while. It's the very definition of what it is. Or else it stops being fantastic, right? But if we as believers are being granted something more stable, if we're being given by God the ordinary means of grace, then we get to come to church every Sunday saying, thank you, Lord, for meeting us here and teaching us from your eternal word and getting our eyes on what matters and what is real and true. Thank you, God, for loving us enough to keep us tethered to you by this wonderful word. It is the ordinary means of grace that should produce for us the ongoing reminder that our salvation is good, that our fellowship with God is a sweet fellowship, and that our interaction with one another ought to be continually drawing from those great realities that we find in the words and pages of this scripture. So regularly read the word of God as a means of grace, church. Not just when you're in, ch- in church on Sundays, but pick up God's scripture. You're blessed to have it at your fingertips wherever you go. You're blessed to have free audio Bibles that you can listen to when you're driving in your car. Let that scripture expose itself to you. Let it show you who Christ really is. Read it regularly. Meditate on it regularly. That means you read it, but then you don't just read it to check it off and put it away. But you read it and you stop and you think about it more and more. You chew on that word. You try to ask yourself, what kind of implications does this have in my life? And then you go and you talk about what you read with somebody else. And you say, have you read through that passage lately? 
You know, what was your take on that word there? How has that impacted you as a believer? What could we be doing as a church to be more obedient to this passage of scripture? Meditate on that word and ask yourself, what has God put that in there for, for my benefit? How is this delivering grace to me? And then regularly pursue the preaching, the preaching of God's word as its aim is to enrich your comprehension of Scripture and Scripture's object. And what is the object of Scripture? It's always Christ. When preaching is doing what preaching is supposed to be doing, your appreciation for God should be rising. It should be strengthening. It should be growing. Preaching is to challenge you to live accordance with what you have read in the book by which God has given us the revelation of Himself. I like what Tim Challies says in speaking of God's word is an ordinary means of grace. He says, we cannot grow in godliness without the word. Therefore, the Bible must be read, taught, absorbed, and applied. We must read it as individuals, families, and churches. Parents must teach it to their children, pastors to their congregations, Christians to their peers. We must meditate on it, diligently and prayerfully seeking to understand it, and we must apply it shaping our lives according to its every truth and every command. As Christians, we are and must always be people of the book. Returning again to Acts chapter 2, which describes a spirit-filled church in the earliest stages of its growth. We look down now at verses 46 and 47. And by day, or and day by day, Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. When Acts 2.46 speaks of breaking bread in their homes, it's, it's almost certainly referring to the observation of the Lord's Supper. The earliest church didn't have a building like we enjoy today. The earliest church met in the homes of the believers so whoever had the biggest place, the brothers and sisters would gather around in that area. They would preach the word. They would pray together. And they would, of course, break bread and share the cup. So they put into practice the very ordinance that Jesus instituted on the night before he was crucified. Once again, we have an observ- observational evidence, which we just read in Acts. And we'll back that up with, a, a prepos- uh, with an imperative commandment. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11... Read, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is the Lord's Supper. This is the fellowship of the table, which God has ordained to be one of these ordinary means of grace to us. When we eat the bread, when we take of the cup, it's not a saving rite. It is not what makes us uh, alive in Christ, but it is a nourishing rite, one to those who have been saved by grace, by which they are made stronger And they are reminded of the great power that Christ exerted in taking us from the kingdom of darkness and bringing us to the kingdom of light. It's great blessing to us is the strong reminder that Christ's power has saved us, not our own power, 
We are given a renewed sense of dependence upon Jesus when we remember what he did for us. Our gratitude is reinvigorated when we consider his suffering and his willingness to take that burden upon his own shoulders. We're encouraged then to lay our burdens current at his feet so that he might deal with them with the power that we need him to deal with them with, with the power of the cross. There should be a regular participation in this. I've talked to some people who say, well, to me, communion's a very special thing, and I only want to do it every once in a while. Because if you do it too often, it makes it seem less important. But that's not the problem of the ordinance. It's the problem of our attitude. Friends, this is something that we are to regularly do. Why would we deny ourselves what communion accomplishes for us? Isn't this something that we need all the time? This is not something that we just wait months for so that we might ascend the mountain and meet with God and then hopefully that carries us to the next peak. In the verses we just looked at a moment ago, we do not see a command demanding a certain frequency with it. It says, as often as you take it. So it's leaving some freedom there for us to decide how often we take it. And so churches have latitude. But communion is an ordinary means of grace and it should be done regularly. It might even be better for our church to do it weekly. We've had discussions about that as elders because it is such a blessing to us as his people. Surely we should not do it on only the rare occasion. We don't want to make the ordinary means of grace into some extraordinary every once in a while experience. In doing so, we cheapen it really. It is there to keep us going. It is there to keep us grounded in the truth that Christ alone is our salvation. Communion is also done in conjunction with other means of grace. It is to be taken by those who are baptized. Because this is the normal consistency that we see established in the word of God. You get baptized as a picture of your dependence upon the triune God for salvation. And then you partake in communion regularly as an ongoing reminder of that change that was brought about in your heart by the Holy Spirit. So if you take communion without baptism, you're not following the regular order of things. Ordinary means by which God has has told us to disciple his followers and that we see as a pattern set for us in the New Testament church. And there is one more uh, ordinary means of grace to consider this evening. Again, there's much more that can be said of each of these, uh, but we don't have the time to go into details of each and we don't want to because others are going to preach specifically uh, and more focusedly on these things. (coughs) But we do want to close tonight by considering that prayer is an ordinary means of grace. Prayer is reverent communication with God. That is usually, but not always, accomplished with words, with real language. Romans 8.26 reminds us that sometimes we don't even know what to say when we pray. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So that is a comfort to us, that even if we don't know what to say to the Lord God, that just knowing we need to talk to him, And the groans of our heart is enough for the Lord to know what is going on in our hearts and minds. But we shouldn't take this one verse in Romans 8 to mean that prayer is having the Lord in mind when we indiscriminately just react to the world around us. It is properly to be communication. God is a personal being. So we shouldn't say, oh yeah, I'm praying all day just because I know way back in my mind that there's a God and I'm just living my life the way I want to live. It's not actually praying to the Lord. We should speak to him. We should thank him for the justification that we've been given so that we can speak to him. Prayer must be understood not just as a means to a blessing, 
but as a blessing in and of itself. This is fellowship with God. When we stop what we're doing and we put our focus on Him, it should be our desire to pray and to be near to the Lord God in fellowship like this. Realize that when you do pray, you have an audience with the very King of the universe. I remember reading through Esther and marveling at the fact that she was married to the king, but when she made the decision to go into his presence and make a request of him, she was risking her life to do that. Because in that culture, in that nation, it was illegal to allow yourself in to be with the king. You had to be requested to be seen by the king. And that's not extraordinary over time, that people who are in very high places often don't have time for regular folks like us. But the king of the heavens and the earth wants you to speak to him throughout the day. He wants to hear what's on your heart and mind. He wants you to express to him the desires of your heart and your fears and your weaknesses. He wants you to interact with him in this way. Rejoice in that fact. Psalm 16.1. Psalm 16.11 rather says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We might make the mistake of thinking that this means that right here at the right hand of Jesus, he's got every material thing we could want. All that gold that we don't have right now, that great car, all the pleasures of my heart are right there at the right hand of Jesus. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that when I'm at the right hand of Jesus, when I am with him, that's pleasure. I am enjoying the presence of my Savior. That's my greatest My greatest comfort and happiness is when I am close to the Lord God. And so Jesus is is encouraging us and encouraging the church to be a people of prayer. If prayer is nothing more than a tool to extract from God what you really want from Him, then what what, what you really want needs to change. You need to start wanting more of the Lord and less of the world. Christian, have a desire for better things than what this world has to offer. Have a desire to be near to your Savior, to know Him well, to interact with Him regular. And if you don't feel like you have that desire, if you're like, I wish I desired to pray more, then pray that God will give you the desire to want to pray more. Ask Him to refine that in you. Ask Him to give you a better perspective on how small the things of this world are that you often let yourself be distracted by. And ask him to give you a more passionate desire to pursue him and to love him the way that you ought to, considering the great love that he has shown to you. Unlike communion, we are given an instruction regarding the frequency of this ordinary means of grace. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So prayer should be such a regular part of our lives that that we're doing it every single day throughout the day. How regularly, friends, do we benefit from prayer? How often do we experience the joy of just coming near to our God and saying, so glad you're close to me, God. You're near to me right now. Thank you that the barrier that used to keep me far away from you is banished because of Christ. Thank you for putting up with my weaknesses and my fears. Even when I don't understand you rightly, you hold me tight to you. Thank you, Lord God. It is good practice to determine established times of prayer, to set up different parts of your day when you know that you will have a pocket of time, hopefully undistracted by the world, when you're just going to determine, I'm going to spend some time in the morning, I'm going to spend some time on my lunch break, I'm going to spend some time in the evening. I know that at least I'll be praying in those times during the day. 
But it's also good to keep in mind that prayer is our constant resource. It's something that we don't have to be in a special place to do. It's something we don't have to close our eyes to do. Notice that you can search the scripture all the way over. It doesn't say, stop what you're doing, fold your hands, bow your head, and then you can pray. Scripture doesn't say that. It says pray without ceasing. So logically, if we're going to pray without ceasing, that means that prayer can can be something that we do at any time. Engage the Lord, mentally think about Him. And don't forget that song is a type of prayer as well. When we sing praises to the Lord God, ideally, we are praying to Him to measure and to meter, that we are thanking Him in, in a way that is musical so that we might pray together the same things that we've all been blessed by and experienced. Psalm 69, verses 30 through 31 says, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify Him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. You know, in the Old Testament, they were prescribed to offer sacrifices to the Lord God. But really what those sacrifices were to accomplish was to bring the people of God closer to the Lord, make them think about the magnitude of their sin and how they needed Him to overcome that sin so they could be close to Him. So friends, we've got four ordinary means here. Baptism, the Word of God, communion, and prayer. Four ordinary means of grace. Are there other ordinary means of grace? Some people would argue that perhaps there are. Some people would say that fellowship with other believers is a means of grace. Some people would say that charitable giving, meeting the needs of others, is a way that God distributes grace to the body of Christ. Some would even think of church discipline as a means of grace, that God uses that to refine our hearts. And we cannot cannot exclude the fact that there are extraordinary means of grace by which God uses unique circumstances to deliver grace to us. We read about that in 2 Corinthians 12, don't we, where the Apostle Paul has been given a thorn in his flesh, not something you would normally call a means of grace. But after praying that it would be removed from him three times, God reveals to him that this very thorn is a way for me to show you that my strength is made perfect in weakness. And so then Paul goes on to say, so that I will glory all the more in my weakness, that in my weakness his power might shine. So this was a means of grace to Paul. It was extraordinary. It wasn't one that he gives to all of us. And God can do that to you. He might put you through a sickness. He might put you in a trial. He might put a particular person in your life who is an extraordinary means by which God's grace comes to you. Someone who can mentor you or point you to Christ regularly or who is an example and has walked the road before you that you're on, that you can learn from. So there are these extraordinary means for grace. But the clear testimony of Scripture through the years is given us reason to lift up the four basic ordinances we've examined tonight as the ordinary means by which God regularly supplies us with the evidence of his love, knowledge by which to grow, peace in which we rest, and a continual reminder that we have no greater blessing than our Savior Jesus Christ. Let's pray and then we'll have a time of questions and answers. Lord God, you are extraordinary. And even the things that you do for us which are categorized as ordinary are so unique in this world. How many billions of people walk around never having really prayed to you? Sadly, so many people have never experienced the blessing of looking at your word and understanding what it means when it reveals who you are. We thank you, God, for the Holy Spirit that makes these ordinary means of grace something so special and vital to us. And we're grateful that, God, you didn't just get us out of hell and then just leave us on our own, Lord, but that you are continually supplying to us what we need day in, and day out. Father, keep us from being negligent from these means. Help us, Lord God, to not build layers of man's ideas upon the top of this beautiful thing that you call and designate your church, your bride. Lord, let her be fettered and clothed only in the righteous things that your scripture
prescribes and commands, Father. We thank you, Lord God, for your patience in us. We know we're not diligent to these all the time, but we also know that every victory we have in, in, in enjoying these ordinances is because of the work that you're doing. So we give you all credit and glory, God, and we look forward to the growth that comes to us through these simple and ordinary means you've provided. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, kids. I went long. I'm sorry. But uh, are there any questions or uh, comments that anybody wanted to make based on the teaching tonight? Paul. So I was wondering if you know why the, um, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Second London Confession of Faith both say that there's only, the, well, the Westminster says sacraments, the London Confession of Ordinances, why they both say there's only two. Um, whereas the shorter catechism and the Baptist catechism are based off of those confessions. So, for example, in, um, in chapter 27 in the Westminster of the Sacraments, it says in Article 4, there are only two sacraments ordained by Christ our Lord in the Gospel. That is to say, baptism and the Supper of the Lord, neither of which may be dispensed by any but a minister of the Word lawfully ordained. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's really a mystery to me. I didn't find a definitive answer when I was preparing. I, I noticed the same thing. And it's tricky, too, because other people will count other things as ordinances of the Lord, especially when you use the word ordinance instead of sacrament. I've heard a lot more consistently baptism and the Lord's table described as sacraments, even then other things described as ordinances underneath the sacraments. But I didn't find any real definitive reason as to why the catechisms expanded there. I don't have an answer. So Eastern Orthodoxy would also hold to that. And some branches of Anglicanism, and depending on which time they were practicing, have held to the uh, importance and the necessity of the sacraments for salvation. But I don't think that's the case today. I would have to look that up. But um, I don't think you're going to find that in any of the Protestant denominations because they're based on this idea, really, of Christ being our only means of salvation. Now, the monergistic faith. Yeah, not for salvation, but made effectual to the elect for salvation. So what that means is that they are not just, it, it's, it's speaking of the participation of the Lord in that, that the Lord is doing something effective through it. It's not just a ritual. It's not just religious practice, but that God is using these to effectually give grace to those who are truly saved. So that's why I talked about how those who are not saved, these are different than ordinary, right? They're horrible. They're nothing that a, a lost person really wants to do. Truly, baptism and prayer and the Lord's table, that's not something that those on the outside are like dying to try to replicate. 
There are those who pretend to pray, but it's not the same thing that we're talking about, humbly coming before the Lord God of all creation and, and thanking Him for His grace and recognizing that He is our only means of salvation. So, made effectual to the elect for salvation doesn't mean that that saves them, but it means that for those who are elect for salvation, these are efficacious. Does that make sense? What's that? It's, I think the motivation behind that, John, is the church's desire to hold the keys to the kingdom in such a way that grace is the institutions to distribute. So it's their idea that in order to get this grace, you've got to come to us. Now, obviously, we have a great respect and love for the church of God. We know that God uses the church to bless us, and these ordinary means of grace are tied clearly to the operations day-to-day of God's church. But we ought be very careful in thinking of it like a sacerdotal system where there are priestly men that have the power to give you or withhold from you the grace of God. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the priesthood of the believer. And so we come together and obey these things. But God delivers grace to us all, not through the church necessarily, but directly as believers. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I think you have to look at that as potentially evidence that the person doesn't have a true profession of faith. Because if the Lord God, I, I like to think of it this way. John, if you told me that you really love me and that uh, you know we're close and we're brothers, but you couldn't stand being around my wife, didn't want to have anything to do with her or talk to her or anything like that, we couldn't stay friends, really. You know what I mean? Like The church is the bride of Christ. So somebody who says, me and the Lord, we're tight, we have this great relationship going on, but I really have a an aversion to the church and I don't have anything to do with it, there's a serious misunderstanding about what it means to be saved into the body and to be a part of the believers that constitute other Christians in faith. And as Westerners, we got an uphill battle here because we think, we think of everything so individualistically. And there's error in that. We need to recognize that we've been saved into a people. The elect are God's people. It's not just elect Nick and I get to be buddies with the Lord and whatever he does with everybody else is on him. We're, we're a part of a group. And so the true Israel of God, in order to be a part of that group, you've got to participate with it, right? So somebody who says they're loving the Lord and they're walking in the truth, but they really are voluntarily having no part of the church of God, or there's no real affection or care or concern for the church of God, you have to ask yourself, is there really a true profession of faith there? And you'd want to diagnostic questions asked to that person. You'd want to challenge them and try to find out if there's some reason 
You know, I, I know there are extenuating circumstances. If someone's in prison for an extended period of time, it's hard to be connected to a church. If somebody is uh, in a place where there's just very few Christian, denomina- or Christian churches around and you happen to live in that area, it's tough to be involved regularly or if there, you know, there are persecutions upon the church which make it hard to be engaged in a regular rhythm. You've got to find creative ways to get around that. But somebody who, there's, there's churches around and they just choose to do other things on their Sunday, you have to stop and ask yourself, like, this is disobedience to the scripture. For one, you're, you're not following the Lord's command. And can you do that with a clear conscience for an extended length of time and not be burdened by it? If you have the Holy Spirit, I have to think that your conscience would be damaged by that. Yeah, I just, I get concerned about what I have a lot of friends that are like they go to church, but they're not involved in church, right? So, and it just, it makes my heart break. I mean, they have a profession of faith. But, um, I mean, you know salvation is not by work. Yeah. You also know that it's fruit, right? So, it's just, I don't know, I mean, it's, Yeah. It's difficult. And our job is not to determine whether they're saved or not necessarily. Our job is to exhort them and if we see an error in their lives to encourage them and challenge them and push them towards that and to pray and pray that the Lord would work that out in their lives and um, if they're they're hiding other sins often that's what's keeping them out of uh, out of the church a lot of times people avoid the fellowship of the saints or being underneath the the work of elders because they don't want church discipline that's a means of grace that they would rather do without so you also have to just watch that life carefully and see if there's any evidence that maybe that brother or sister slipping into other things that's keeping them from the truth and causing them to want to be a lone ranger because they're actually it's easier to hide something if you're a lone ranger. That's something else to consider too. Yes. You had a lot of really good things helping you to say about the means of grace and the benefits. They are alike, especially though, when it came to um, the question I just asked you about, what it means for it to be made connection with salvation. And so based on all of those things, what would be the reason to not observe the Lord's Supper weekly? Because you spoke of this so highly, the richness of it, it would almost seem yeah. like it's negligent to deprive us of the benefit that, that it gives through it. Yeah, yeah. Um, there's really not a strong, strong argument to be made against it. Uh, I think that people who do it occasionally know that it does take time to do it well. And there's, uh, there's only so much time that people have. Unfortunately, on Sunday mornings, you've got such a limited attention span for Americans. Like tonight, the fact that we've got maybe, this is actually a pretty good turnout for a Sunday night. But we had four to six times as many people on a Sunday morning. You want to do things to involve the people of Christ, but you also realistically know that your time limits are going to determine whether some people are participating or not. So that's probably a weakness in the way that the amount of times we take the Lord's Supper is determined. But, um, and just again, the fact that there's not a strict command to do it weekly means that you're not an error to not do it weekly. Uh, as, as a church, we used to do it like four to six times a year back uh, years ago, and that wasn't uh, a practice that we we enjoyed. We wanted to do it more and more, and so we began to do it weekly, probably about the time that we moved to this building. Um, but yeah, we've talked about doing it but weekly before, and I'm still open to it. Certainly, the churches that do it periodically, like once every quarter, they would not say the same things about it that you just spoke of it tonight. Yeah. 
You want to be careful not to look at some of those potentially other means of grace as like something that you force upon the people. Like for instance, somebody asked me, um, why don't we ever do foot washings at the church? And some churches actually say that foot washing is a means of grace and that you should do it regularly. But you just don't see that commanded in the scripture and you don't see it in the pattern of the way the, the, the saints interacted with each other in the early church. So we want to be careful not to like require that of folks because it doesn't seem to be normative. These ordinary means of grace do seem to be normative. And uh, we do see them breaking bread pretty regularly, but we don't see something that outright says you have to do it every week. So, you know, we, we, don't, we want to be careful not to think of a church that doesn't do it weekly as an error or sin. But if it is a benefit to us to do that every week, then we need to seriously think about changing that, I guess. Other comments or questions? All right, well, there'll be plenty of opportunities to talk more about many of these things because as we said, in the next few weeks, we're gonna have some more in-depth snapshots of some of the stuff that we looked at kind of from, a, from an air, airplane point of view. We'll be looking at it more up close. So, uh, so think about some more questions and bring them in the weeks to come. Let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll, we'll dismiss. God, we thank you for your grace and ask that you would continue to help us chew on these things as we go. We love you. We're grateful for you, Lord God, and we thank you for uh, giving us everything that we need and keeping away from us everything that we might think we need that we don't need. So you are a good and a holy God. Help us trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.